2 Corinthians chapter 8 from 1 to 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through he was rich, Oh, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. There comes a time in every family when uh, it's good to talk about money. Maybe you can remember those times when you were growing up. A time where family sat down, mum or dad or both rolled up their sleeves, and the cold light of economic reality started to break into the child's consciousness. What? what? You mean money doesn't grow on trees? Can't you just go to one of those things in the wall and get more out? No. We now have these conversations with our older children quite regularly. We try and explain God is very good to us and provides for our needs. But at the same time, Melissa and I are not cash machines. One example is a year six school trip called PGL. Wonderful fun. Three days at an outdoor pursuit center. But PGL costs 220 pounds. So we said, well, you can pay half if you want to do it. You ask for birthday money, and then you can put your money towards it. Now, let me say, that doesn't make us bad parents. It's just reality. And the earlier children get to know how to manage money and be responsible, the better for them. Now, whether you're a parent or not, I hope you can see the sense in explaining two principles to our children. One, some of the things you enjoy cost money, 
And two, at some point you need to contribute. Some of the things you enjoy cost money and at some point you need to contribute. Now every family has times when it's healthy to talk about money and we are talking about it in our Grace Church family today, uh, as you've already heard. So this sermon is mostly for the family. And by family I mean that group of committed Christians who meet regularly here, are part of Grace Church. You, you regard this church as your spiritual home. A lot of pastors find it hard to preach about money it can feel like a conflict of interest. It could look like the pastor is financially motivated. Let me say, by the way, that whatever happens on this giving season, Dan and I won't get a pay rise or a performance-related bonus. In fact, all these beautiful slides that Dan has created, he did for free. <laughs> Some time ago, someone at the church said to me, I've been in this church for 15 months, and I've never heard anyone talk about money. I never heard a sermon on it. We don't do a collection. It's actually quite hard to give to this church. I think they'd gone on, seen the stewardship website, and retreated in terror. She went on. I've always been taught to tithe. Even when I was at university, I was taught you made giving a priority. So I've always given 10% of my income to gospel work. And now, when I'm able, I give more than 10%. Now, we'll talk about the tithing in a minute. But as I listened to her, something struck me. The Bible talks about money more than we do. Jesus Christ talked and taught about money more than we do. So if we're going to be a faithful Bible teaching church, at some points we need to teach on this, talk about money, and this is a great time to do it. For the last couple of weeks we've been talking about our vision. Wouldn't it be glorious to see Manchester filled with communities of light, churches? What would that take? New leaders rising up from all around the churches. New churches being started, a process we call planting. New partnerships, all working together for a tipping point where the entire culture of this city could be influenced by the gospel. Last week we celebrated what God is doing already. We thought about some amazing things. God is doing great things in Manchester. Now, one thing we didn't mention last week is that we've added up everyone who's been to this church at least once since September. Every man, woman, and child who's been at least once since September on a Sunday. How many people do you think that is? It's 782 people. Now, just think about that. Nearly 800 people have been able to visit a gospel church in Moss Side and to hear biblical ministry since September. We're not a big church. 800 souls. That is an astonishing number, especially given where we were just a few years ago. Now, there are times in a family when it's good to talk about money, and it's a great time today because money follows vision. And we have a great vision for this city. This city desperately needs the gospel. Manchester needs the great good news of Jesus Christ. The message that you and I are more sinful and wicked than we ever realized, and yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to believe. So we're basically asking with this season, are you in? Are you in? And the surest way to know if someone's in to something is if they're prepared to put their hand in their pocket and help support it. So this is why we're having our family chat about money today. 
So it's a great time to open our Bibles and, and read the greatest fundraising letter that was ever written, 2 Corinthians. If you've closed your Bible, please open it again. We're looking at chapter 8. This is how the Apostle Paul asked the church in Greece, a city called Corinth, to think about its giving. Just two points today. Here they are coming on the screen. Remember the Macedonians. And secondly, remember the Lord Jesus. Remember the Macedonians. What is the situation here? At some point in the first century, there was a terrible famine in Israel, Palestine, and the Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem Christians, were in grave financial hardship. They were in famine conditions. Many of them were poor, and they were literally starving. Paul went on a mission to collect funds from the non-Jewish churches, the, the Gentile churches, all around the ancient world, in Asia Minor, other parts of the, the, the world. He'd gone and he'd started these new churches and he went back to them and said, we, you need to help that mother church back in Jerusalem that sent me out in the first place. You need to help them because they're really suffering. It was relief work. It was also an expression of solidarity an expression of love, of unity, of gratitude from the Gentile Christians to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Now this collection that Paul went to, to, to take is actually mentioned in four different places in his letters. So this is really a big deal. It's not a small little sidebar. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he writes about it and he gives explicit instructions for how to take the collection. In Romans chapter 15, 25 to 28, he mentions the collection and gives more explanation there. But here in chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, we have two whole chapters devoted just to the collection. It's a fundraising letter. And this is how the fundraising starts. Verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches Remember the Macedonian churches, those in another country. He says three things about them in verse 2. Notice these things. Verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now that is an extraordinary verse. Firstly, extreme poverty. Literally says deep poverty these macedonian christians were deeply poor they were not rich people secondly it says they were possessed of something better than money it was overflowing joy it means they had a surplus of joy they just had too much joy going on they had an abundance of joy more than the expected levels although they were poor they were full of joy now we know that money doesn't bring happiness don't we don't we? Mm, not sure. But do we believe it? Sometimes we're lulled into believing that more money, just a bit more, would make me happy. But it cannot. Jesus warned about the cares of wealth. The cares of wealth. The more money you have, the more cares you have. It's an accurate description. Money cannot give you overflowing joy. It can give you overflowing cares. Only knowing Jesus can give you this kind of joy that you can't put a price on. Thirdly, they were possessed of a rich generosity. The incredible thing about these Macedonian Christians was that their great joy welled up within them in rich generosity. Verse 3 says, I testify they gave as much as they were able, 
and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. They gave as much as they could, and then they wanted to give more. They urgently pleaded for the privilege of giving. giving. They exceeded all expectations. It came from within them. Paul didn't pressure them. He was actually saying, look, you guys, calm down. Put your wallets away, please. No, no, they said, this is a privilege. It came from their hearts. No one told them to do it. Now, that is a really rare combination of things, isn't it? Great poverty, distress, joy, and generosity. Let me ask you a question. What's your first instinct when suddenly you realize that your money situation is bad? How do you feel? What happens to your heart, your emotions? Are you full of abundant joy and overflowing generosity? Some years ago, my wife and I had a money scare. It was very scary. For a few days, we were convinced that we might owe back taxes of thousands of pounds because of an innocent schoolboy error. I have to confess, during that time, I was not abundantly joyful. My heart was actually exposed, and what I saw wasn't very nice. The primary emotion going through my body was not abundant joy, but raw fear. Couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, and it welled up to overflowing grumpiness, barking at everybody around. Why? Why was that? Because of what money means to us. What money means to us. You see, money basically gives you power. Money means power. It gives you power over your life, and you think it gives you a certain amount of power over your world. Money gives you the power to choose things. If you've got money, you can make choices. I could do this, I could do that. I can buy this, buy that, go there, get entrance into that place, access to those people, wear those clothes that I always wanted to wear, drive that car. No money, no choices. One reason why people fear poverty is that choices get taken away from you. Somebody else makes choices for you. Money also gives you the power to be free like a bird. If you have money, you can you feel you can do what you like without worrying about it. And isn't it lovely to feel free sometimes and not always be counting the cost of things? Can I afford it? Money also gives you status. That's why many people work hard to look richer than they actually are. You know that? Because money gives them status. A friend of mine became a chief executive of a national company while he was still in his 30s. He told me something fascinating. There was an economic downturn. The firm was cutting costs. He called in the senior management team and he said, look, you're all keeping your jobs, don't worry. But we need to cut the costs somehow. So you've got a choice. You can either take a pay cut or you can have a downgrade in the company car. What do you think they chose? Every one of them chose the pay cut because no one could see that. But the company car, ooh, that's a loss of status. Money gives us power, power to make choices, power to be free, power of status, to be someone, 
get recognition from other people. And if that is where you get your identity from, then you are a captive to money. It has you in its grip. You're enslaved by it. You desperately need it. You can't live without it. You're swollen and proud when you have it and fearful and anxious when it goes. The cares of wealth, my, my. Now, how can you tell if this is the case in your own heart? Here's just a f- five diagnostic questions. One, do you ever worry about money? Two, do you ever complain about money? Three, does money make you afraid? Four, does money make you overconfident? Five, do you fondle your possessions? Do you fondle your possessions? You just love them. Now, if you answered yes to any of those five questions, then it's likely that money has become part of your identity, and that's a very serious thing. If you answered yes to all five of them, I I would be prepared to bet, if I was a gambling man, (laughs) that money has become a part of your identity. And if that is the case, you can never experience the overflowing joy of the Macedonians. You can't, because your heart is too tied to your wallet. And you will never well up in rich generosity like the Macedonians. You can't well up in rich generosity because your heart is too tied to your wallet. You and I need to remember those Macedonian Christians. So what was their secret? Were they a remarkable group of super spiritual Christians like the Christian Avengers? No. He says they were ordinary people. In fact, they were poor people. Not many rich, not any rich. But the text says, notice verse 1, a grace was given to them. A grace was given to them. Let's go back to verse 1. We could skip over it. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, what was that grace? Verse 3, I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service to the Lord's people. They exceeded our expectations. The grace was their generosity. The grace of God to them made them generous. They welled up in rich generosity. They were so confident in God that they could give what they had and even what they didn't have and trust that God had got their back. God gave them that grace. Now, you may feel that talking about money in church is unspiritual, but it turns out that it is deeply spiritual. When we think of God giving grace to us for things, I wonder what you think of. We might think of God helping us to have inner peace in a difficult time or helping us grow in patience or helping us to be more loving and all of those things are true they're all graces from God but in Macedonia the grace of God meant that they put their hand in their pockets for some Jewish Christians they had never met now that is a grace now if these really are just ordinary people like us As far as I'm aware, there's no wealthy people in Grace Church. But they've received something extraordinary from God. How did it happen? How did, and does an ordinary person receive the grace of God? The answer is in verse 9, and it's our second and final point. Remember the Lord Jesus. Have a look at verse 9. Andrew quoted it earlier. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul basically says, look, my friends in Corinth, here's the reason you should give. Not because you have to, not because uh, the Bible says you should, not even because of the law of tithing. Now, I said we would come back to this. What is tithing? A tithe is an old-fashioned word for a tenth. If you look, uh, when you've got time, at Leviticus 27, verse 30, you see this word used for the first time. It was a, a way of describing what the Israelites were supposed to give from their possessions, from their income, to give 10% every year back to God. They had to give 10% of everything they had, 10% of their flocks, their crops, their herds, their herbs. But if tithing is in the Bible, why aren't we teaching on that at Grace Church? Several reasons. Firstly, how we understand the Old Testament law. Some law in the Old Testament is carried forward and is timeless and eternal. For example, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. These are, uh, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet. This is timeless law. There's other kinds of law in the Old Testament that's fulfilled in Jesus, and therefore it has stopped. The temple, offering sacrifices in the temple, having priests, all of that has stopped now because Jesus is the temple, Jesus is the sacrifice, and Jesus is the priest. So that ceremonial law has been fulfilled and therefore ceases. And there are other Old Testament laws that are neither moral nor ceremonial. They were laws that applied to specific situations in an ancient Near East tribal context, uh, an economy that was based on a, a, a rural, a, a, an agrarian economy. So these things are not directly applicable to us. For example, there's a law in the Old Testament that says if you own fields and you're a farmer, you don't um, harvest your crops right to the edge of the field. You leave some boundaries that aren't harvested. You leave some crops growing there so that the poor the alien and stranger, the sojourners can go and they can always pick up food. There's always something for them. You don't grind the poor down. It's called the law of gleaning. Now, how do you apply that to you? As far as I know, none of you have got any fields. You're not going to be out there harvesting your crops later today. But the principle of generosity with what we have and of uh, businesses and of organizations having space in them for the poor and providing, those, those principles are actually really good and can be applied to contemporary business. So at this church, we think that tithing, that law, is more like the third of those things. It's not irrelevant, but it's not binding on Christians because in the New Testament, tithing is not reinforced or taught about and the context of the scattered people of God around the world is radically different from Old Testament Israel. Okay, that's about tithing. But all scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God. All scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training us in righteousness. So like other Old Testament laws, that we're to learn something from tithing. But some new dynamics now inform the finances of God's people in this new covenant. So what principles should guide followers of Jesus in their giving. Not tithing. I'm not going to teach that you should give 10%. And not guilt either. You notice that Paul doesn't talk about the poor Jewish children who are starving in Jerusalem 
And how if only you had one less cup of coffee a day, you could give a cup of coffee to a starving child or something. He doesn't try and turn the screw and work on the conscience. He doesn't say, you're much better off than them. You ought to do it. No. He says the reason you should give is the gospel. And he presents the gospel in monetary terms, economic terms. Back to 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ was rich beyond our imagination. He was eternally God. He made the world. He rules the universe. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. He is waited on by the angels who are so in awe of him that they cover their faces. He was relationally rich, rich in his relationship of love with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Was Jesus rich? The word rich hardly does it justice. And yet, Paul says, he became poor. This beggar's belief. Jesus, the rich ruler, became poor. He who was God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own benefit, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a human. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself and became a man. Then he took the death of a slave. He wasn't a king or an emperor. He was a local carpenter. And then he gave up his trade and became an itinerant preacher. There's not much money in that. At one point Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless for a while. But there's more. Jesus gave up his status. He gave up his good name. He gave up his reputation. He was despised belittled, pushed to the margins, mocked, spat upon, and he still is. He gave up his rich status. Thou who was rich beyond all telling, all for love's sake, became poor. But there's more. The richness of his love relationship with the Father and the Spirit was bankrupted at the cross. He lost everything. He surrendered everything. He gave all he had. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the cry of someone who had nothing left. Did Jesus become poor? The word poor doesn't really do it justice. Now, why did he do it? Verse 9 says that Jesus did it for your sake. Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you might become rich. So let me ask you this morning, are you rich? You know I'm not just talking about your bank balance, your assets. This text says that our Lord Jesus Christ became poor and came to make you rich. Has Jesus succeeded or failed? Has he failed or succeeded in his mission to make you rich? Did the prince of heaven come to earth to find a bride and rescue her from a slum and fail to make her rich? Christian friends, are you rich? What do you have? 
You're rich in forgiveness. God loves and accepts you as much as Jesus himself. Wow. You are rich in love. God loves you and he can't love you any more than he does at this moment. Nothing you could do could lose his love. Nothing you can do could increase his love. His love is higher, wider, deeper, longer than you could get your arms around. Paul says somewhere else, I pray that you may know this love that surpasses knowledge. You're rich in adoption. God doesn't just forgive you and say, okay, I'll let you off. He says, I forgive you and now I bring you into my very family. You have the adoption of sonship and sons in the, in the ancient world used to inherit. You are rich in your inheritance because it's signed with the, the blood of Jesus Christ. You're rich in hope. The hope of the resurrection is that one day we too will rise in a resurrected glorious body and live forever in a world of love heaven a new heavens and a new earth the home of righteousness that's our hope not only for this life for all eternity you are rich in community when you come into the family of Jesus Christ the church you gain a new family brothers and sisters from all around the world from all walks of life the only really unifying force in the world is the gospel and therefore we ought to be rich in joy our African brothers and sisters sometimes look on some of us Brits and wonder why we're not more joyful. I can only apologize for the, for the state of the nation. We should be really rich in joy. These are the real riches, you know. These are the things that people really want, only they don't know it. They blindly think that if I only won the lottery or got a surprise inheritance, I would get all of that, but it doesn't work. Having millions of pounds doesn't automatically make you more lovely. It doesn't automatically give you a community of sincere friends. It doesn't clear your conscience, does it? Obviously not. The cares of wealth. So these are real riches that Jesus gives us. And how did you acquire this wealth? You acquired it at the cross. Let's think about the cross for a moment. How much of his status did Jesus Christ hang on to when he was stripped, beaten, spat upon, mocked? How much did he care what people thought of him when he came for you, hanging naked and fighting for his life? How much glory, reputation and power did Jesus Christ forego when he emptied himself and became a slave? What percentage of himself did Jesus Christ give for you? 10%? You see how now we're in the New Testament talking about 10% drops out of view. How much we've been given compared to those ancient Israelites. Now we know what it costs to forgive our sins. It costs the very life of the eternal Son of God himself. 10% now is pretty minimal. How great is this gift? If we are now co-heirs with Christ... What kind of inheritance are we going to get in the world to come? Lift up your eyes, and as you do, it will open your wallet too. I've quoted from a book called At the Foot of the Snows a few times. I absolutely love this book. One of the top five books I've ever read. Uh, written by uh, David Waters, who with his wife Nancy went to a remote tribe in Nepal in the 1960s. 
and trekked through the snows and found them living in the foothills of the Himalayas and, and, and lived there with them and learned their language and learned their culture and loved them and served them and uh, healed them and brought them the word of God in their own language. This tribe was called the Kham people, K-H-A-M. And eventually, after some years, a group of Kham people became Christians. And they then experienced severe persecution from their neighbors and from the authorities. Some of the men were taken into prison and, and beaten. They were chained and then beaten on their feet so severely that the soles of their feet, which were thick like leather, came away and they had, were forced to walk home bleeding. David talks about the, this group's approach to giving. This is amazing. In spite of the church's suffering and vulnerability, the members instituted certain programs that enabled them to participate more fully in the Christian life. They ran a communion on a regular basis. They also set up what was called a tithing day, a once-a-month event. This one really surprised me, he says, because calm people are incorrigible skinflints. Once, while we still lived in the village, the rich man who owned over a thousand sheep and had purportedly stashed 11 kilograms of gold away refused to pay the equivalent of five cents for a penicillin shot to cure his pneumonia. Villagers chased government tax collectors out of the village for trying to collect an annual fee of one or two rupees for their farm plot. Now, suddenly, these same villagers were infected with enormous excitement about tithing. And nobody wanted to miss out. So in 1981, the leader of that church wrote and said that they had collected 129 kilos of barley, 77 kilos of wheat, and 387 rupees. And they collected firewood, potatoes, and maize and gave these things to the poor in the church. Everyone knew who they were, and no one was secret about it. But they thought they wanted to give more because they were grateful that the word of God had come to them and they traced their spiritual heritage to a church in Kathmandu, the capital city. So after they began this tithing practice, once a year, a man was deputized to travel to Kathmandu and quietly drop 500 or 1,000 rupees into the offering bag that was passed around on Sunday mornings. No one outside of the calm church knew about it. And their deputy, who was dressed in shabby clothes, always sat unnoticed in the back of the church. David Waters says, I always felt that the money was flowing in the wrong direction. But because it was clear that the hearts of the calm believers were going in the right direction, I said nothing about it. This poor little church, persecuted, out in the foothills of the Himalayas, was sending someone with money to give to a bigger church in the city centre. Wow. A generous member of our church once wrote to me, some people think tithing is about giving money to God. I used to think that as well, but now I believe there's a biblical principle around giving God the best of ourselves, including our time and money. Matthew 6 says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I take this to be mean money. So when I give, I do it because God wants my heart. I know God doesn't need my money, but he does want my heart. I give because I want to give God my best, she said. The money I receive is the fruit of my labor, and without God, I wouldn't be able to make money. 
Therefore, I give back what belongs to him to demonstrate my love for him and desire to put him first. Friends, it's not about the amount. Ali said that earlier on. How much do you think those extremely poor Macedonians were able to give? Not much. It's not about the amount. It's about the attitude. So as we ask you to give during this vision season, we are setting these two targets. An increase of our regular monthly giving of £2,000 a month. Regular monthly giving is really important because it's stable, because we can budget, we can pay our staff, we can predict roughly what's ahead. We can set a budget for the church and plan ahead. The second target is a one-off gift of £20,000. It's a lot of money. And that's 10% of our annual budget. But having a one-off helps us to top up the bank account and smooth out fluctuations in giving. So if you're already giving, thank you. And may God bless you and give you joy in your giving. May I encourage you to remember the Macedonians. Their generosity was breathtaking. And if you're in our church family and you could give, but you're not doing so yet, do you realize how much of a difference you could make? Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul concludes his uh, words here in 2 Corinthians 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. At the end of this service, no one gets out alive without one of these booklets. And uh, please take it home, read it, pray over it, and at the back it will tell you how to give. Let's pray.